Welcome back to The Complete History of Coffee, Episode 13, The Civil War Was Won on Coffee. Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and let's get started. Okay, so today I have something a little special for all of you. Um, I wanted to go ahead and try doing Tassiography, which if you remember from some of our earlier episodes, it is a uh, practice in which you read coffee grounds or tea leaves. Today we have a coffee from Summer Moon. It is a Guatemalan medium roast. So I'm going to go ahead and drink this coffee. Um, and while I'm doing that, you want to try to think about maybe the potential question that you have in mind. And then once you're finished, you're going to go ahead and get your cup and we're going to flip it over. Um, so I made this as a Turkish style coffee as I had on earlier episodes. That way we get some of the grounds. And if you notice, the cup itself is actually a cup for tassiography. Let's see what it says. So it says cosmic brew on the front and then the stars are aligning for you on the back. Um, the cup itself is from Goddess Provisions. Um, it's actually in the style of astrology, so it has um, the phases of the moon on the bottom of the cup, as well as the 12 zodiac signs, so that way you can sort of implement that within the reading when you're doing your tassiography. I flipped the cup upside down, and I turned it around three times, because we're essentially just trying to get those coffee grounds to mix around. I asked about career, so if you notice when we're looking inside the cup, now if you're listening to this through the audio version of the podcast, I'm going to do my best to describe it for you. If you are watching on the video version or want to watch on the video version later, I am recording the Tassiography reading. About career, I'm asking about like acting and music. That's the sort of career I'm going into. We have a heart, if you notice, right away on the bottom. So that's sort of the, uh, the central point that we're seeing here. Um, as we're looking at the various zodiac signs, I'm noticing that we have uh, a little bit kind of coming on Aries and Taurus, but not a whole lot covering those. Um, now, I'm not sure what all that means because I haven't done a lot of tassiography, but if I had to guess, we're noticing that as we start getting a little bit further along into Gemini, Cancer, Leo... Um, we start seeing a lot more grounds that are happening right there. So if I had to guess, I would assume that's a real pickup period within the career, that there's a lot more activity just yes. happening in general. And that's looking like late fall, early summer, the period in which those zodiac signs fall. So if you want to see where a lot of the coverage is happening, let's say we want to start with Gemini, because that seems to be the start of a lot of the activity. Um, in the little booklet that it gives you with the cup, it says, It's time to speak your truth. Take note that sometimes the hardest person to be truthful with is yourself. Don't hold back on what you already know to be true. So perhaps this has to do with some doubt maybe that I'm having about getting into a career in acting and music and just not really holding myself back and allowing myself to see the truth. Because, I mean, if we're going back to what we did at the beginning, we have that heart. So obviously there's a lot of love, a lot of passion going right there. So I think just continuing on this path. For any of you who don't know, I actually do psychic readings and energy work professionally. If any of you are interested in getting a psychic reading, I do palmistry, tarot, 
oracle, pendulums, and runes, you can contact me about that at All in the Hands on social media or by emailing me at the email for this podcast. Before we get back to our story in America, just in time for Thanksgiving, I want to consider something first. We have seen a trend in the show so far with coffee fueling many revolutions. This episode is a sort of counter-argument to that theme. To understand what I mean, let's think about what a revolution is. Now, more importantly for this episode, what do you think the difference between a revolution and a civil war is? Back when I was in college studying history and political science, I remember asking one of my professors to explain the difference because they are often very similar. The conclusion we came to, and one I have found often to be the case, is revolutions are typically won and civil wars are often lost. By this, I mean the side leading the revolution remembers the event in history as a revolution, such as the French Revolution. A civil war is when the side leading the rebellion or secession loses, such as the American Civil War. There is more to this, however, as revolutions are more about overthrowing the government and civil wars are generally between citizens. And there is gray room, such as the English Civil Wars, which was successful in removing the king, or the Arab Spring, referred to by some as the Arab Spring Revolution, having mixed results, some of which included counter-revolution and was overall not a very effective example of revolutions. One thing we've seen in this podcast is coffee's place in helping to aid revolutions, but today we will find coffee helping to prevent a rebellion. I assume many of us wake up in the morning in our warm, cozy beds and get up to have our morning cup of coffee. Or perhaps you get ready, and even though you don't have time before work, you go through a drive through somewhere for a latte. Now imagine with me, if you will, you wake up one morning to the sound of gunfire and explosions. You hear a call to arms and quickly get out of your cot and make your way out of the barracks to smoke and fire. It's still dark outside, it's barely 4.30 in the morning in South Carolina. Today, your routine has changed. There will be no cup of coffee this morning. You fight long and hard to defend yourself from the surprise attack which has come from other Americans. After 34 hours of holding out, you're forced to surrender. This was the start of the American Civil War. But let's rewind for a second. As you may remember, coffee was not initially popular in the United States, as alcohol, tea, and chocolate were popular competitors. However, around the beginning of the 19th century, coffee culture began to increase in popularity, French coffee culture became a more mainstream trend in America right around the time of the War of 1812, which saw a temporary loss to access of coffee, tea, and other French luxuries. This resulted in America switching over to Brazil for its coffee. As Brazil was growing into the largest coffee producer, the United States was becoming the largest coffee consumer. It was Brazil's ability to expand coffee production, keeping it at low cost, which allowed the U.S. to grow its coffee consumption. Keep in mind, from 1800 to 1900, the population of the U.S. grew from 5.5 million to 76.1 million. 
During the mid-19th century, major urban centers arose, bringing a need for coffee with them. American coffee consumption grew from three pounds per capita a year in 1830 to eight pounds in 1859. Unlike in France, coffee houses were less mainstream. Instead, Americans typically consumed coffee at home. Coffee became seen as helping to aid westward expansion. Native Americans similarly adopted the coffee culture, with the Sioux tribe calling it Kusuta Safa, or Black Medicine. Further, Native Americans raided several wagon trains for supplies, including coffee, and would exchange items such as buffalo robe with white traders for a cup of coffee. Beans were often roasted at home in a pan over a stove, although wealthier housewives used home roasters which were churned by hand or by steam. Home grinders became slowly more common over the 20th century, but many still used a mortar and pestle. The first innovation in the coffee pot was a sort of percolator called the Old Dominion Coffee Pot from 1859. This product suggested brewing the night before and then reboiling it the morning before breakfast. Needless to say, this suggested coffee brewing resulted in very bitter coffee with a thin body and became a sort of staple for American coffee for a period of time. Coffee buying as we know it today began in the United States in the 1840s, with wholesale coffee roasting businesses supplying stores with pre-roasted beans which could be sold at weight. In the urban areas, the U.S. saw the first commercial coffee roaster in New York, brought over from England by James Wilde in 1833. In the 1840s, James W. Carter invented the pull-out roaster, allowing for easier and quicker roasting of large batches of coffee. The design featured spinning perforated cylinders, which dumped out freshly roasted coffee beans onto trays, releasing smoke, which workers were forced to breathe in as they used shovels to turn the coffee beans around on the trays. Mark Pendergast in Uncommon Grounds compared the work conditions to, quote, the lower range of Dante's Inferno amidst smoke, stress, and burned beans, end quote. Roasting coffee grew to such a large extent that by the mid-1840s, New York City alone could roast as much coffee as was consumed in all of England. Roasters would determine when coffee was ready based off of the color of the smoke coming out of the roaster. They then put the coffee onto trays to be cooled by stirring it by hand, or they unloaded the coffee straight onto the floor and sprinkled it with water. This method was not the best, not only for sanitary purposes, but also because, as one observer described it, quote, the contact of water and hot coffee caused so much steam that the roasting room was in a dense fog, end quote. In 1864, Javis Burns created a self-emptying roaster, which pushed the beans out onto a churning cooling tray. His invention allowed for more standardized coffee roasting and helped coffee to be sold at lower prices. Burns believed coffee roasting would shift out of the household and would be taken over by manufacturers, and he was right, as most coffee today is roasted by manufacturers. 
In fact, his design hasn't changed very much, and many roasters today still utilize very similar qualities. People outside of the urbanized city areas often purchase coffee as green beans from general stores, later roasting and grinding coffee at home. Housewives of the time would then brew the coffee using unorthodox means in order to force the coffee grounds to float to the top. Cookbooks directed the use of eggs or even cod as a means of achieving this. It's not surprising then, European coffee brewing styles later took over in popularity, especially those from France. One American named Benjamin Thomas innovated the French two-tier drip pot originally created by Jean-Baptiste Bellois. Thompson, or Count Rumford as he went by, created the Rumford pot and went on to push for freshly brewed coffee. His concepts of not reheating coffee and boiling water before adding the coffee took off in Europe, but failed to become popular in America. American coffee, by and large, was overbrewed and bitter. After coffee production increased following the coffee crisis of 1823 with newer leaf rust resistant coffee plants, coffee prices dropped almost in half in the U.S. from 1821 to just four years later in 1825. To meet this increased demand for coffee, Java, Ceylon, Costa Rica, and Brazil increased coffee production. The West Indies, however, couldn't keep up with the increased coffee supply demands and so switched to sugarcane. Leading up to the American Civil War, there was a reduction in coffee production as demand continued to increase, but the price decreased. Once the war started, however, coffee production increased because the Union put a four-cent duty fee on imported coffee. This created a price increase on coffee, which encouraged Brazilian coffee production. The Union alone purchased 40 million pounds of coffee in the year 1864. And even after the war's end, many soldiers were now hooked on coffee after having received it in their rations during the war. Union soldiers each received 36 pounds of coffee a year, leading coffee to be seen as a driving force in the war. This was due in part to the psychoactive ability of caffeine, which generals were well aware of and so wanted them to consume it before battle. This effect was seen at the Battle of Antietam, the bloodiest day of the war, when 19-year-old William McKinley, future president, provided coffee to the troops along the front line. He faced heavy fire, but was successful in boosting morale, and as their commanding officer stated, it quote, was like putting a new regiment into the fight, end quote. So important was coffee during the war, men would roast coffee even before making their supper. Their lieutenants would evenly divide up coffee for their men using a sword and would turn their back to the piles, calling out people on the roster to collect their pile as a way to ensure fairness. To keep coffee more fresh, Soldiers left beans unground until they were to be used. And on a side note, I would recommend doing the same thing at home because once you grind your coffee, it expires much faster. So a coffee grinder for home is a great investment. During the Civil War, the company's cook was responsible for bringing a grinder with them, and some carbines were designed to have a grinder in the butt of the gun. 
The importance of the drink can be seen in the use of the word coffee, as it appeared in soldiers' diaries more than other words like bullet, rifle, or cannon. To some soldiers, coffee drinking became a competition of who drank the most a day, while to others it was a way to soften up hardtack or mix crumbled biscuits with. John Billings wrote a memoir following the war, Hardtack and Coffee in which he described the necessity for dipping hardtack in your coffee because it killed weevils that got into it. Confederate states, by contrast, lacked the means and finances to purchase coffee, so Confederate troops were supplied with substitutes like wheat, beans, acorns, and chicory. Coffee became a luxury in the South. It was sold for $5 a pound in Virginia during the war, and while that might not sound too expensive today, that number would be equivalent to around $150 for a pound of coffee. Coffee was so valuable in the South, it was even used in place of diamonds by one jeweler in Atlanta. It was at this point we start to see the beginning of coffee brands we may recognize, such as Folgers. During the war in 1862, the paper bag was invented for peanuts, but was quickly used to package all sorts of items. It was an entrepreneur named John Arbuckle and his brother Charles who opened the Arbuckle Brothers Company in 1871. John Arbuckle, who co-owned McDonald and Arbuckle, was the first to utilize Burns Roaster and the paper bag to sell pre-roasted pounds of coffee. Some made fun of him for selling coffee in peanut bags, but his idea gained massive popularity, so much so that he eventually purchased an automated packaging machine to keep up with the high demand. Arbuckle used a glaze made out of eggs and sugar on his coffee to help keep it fresh for longer. He would go on to create the coffee brand Ariosa, which competed with other brands like Dilworth Brothers by slandering their name using a woodcut illustration of their barrels depicting various bugs and filth in their barrels. On a side note, coffee today actually allows for a certain percentage of bugs in coffee. But before we get too grossed out about coffee, let's continue. Before the war, New Orleans was the main center for coffee importing for the United States, as we will see next episode on the history of chicory. However, New York overtook New Orleans during the war as the Union moved to blockade the main port of the South, making New York the main coffee importing center. As a result, Arbuckle moved his operation to New York, later opening branches in Kansas City and Chicago, making the Arbuckle brothers and Ariosa large household names across the U.S. In the 1880s, Arbuckle owned his own shipping fleet and barrel factory, opening up green coffee exporting offices in Mexico and all three of the major Brazilian ports. The Arbuckle brothers became multi-millionaires in the coffee industry, even going on to dip their hands in the sugar industry. So massive was the Arbuckle coffee plant in Brooklyn, there was a dining room and even a hospital for its employees. Ariosa's popularity went beyond just urbanized cities, becoming the most popular coffee among cowboys out west. Now, around the same time in 1878, two men established the coffee company Chase and Sanborn in Boston. 
the coffee and tea company specialized in their seal brand Java and Mocha, packaged in their self-produced tin cans. Their cans were sealed to prevent air from getting in, but did little to remove air already inside the cans, resulting in stale coffee. Still though, the cans featured the Chase family seal, a lion rampart on top of four lions, and the Latin Nicere Malis, meaning roughly, do not yield to evil. Two years after Chase and Sanborn was formed, they expanded to Chicago and then to Canada in 1882. By this time, they were selling over 100,000 pounds of coffee a year, quickly extending their sales throughout the U.S. and Canada. As the company grew, so too did their coffee choices, which included cheaper options packaged in paper bags lined with parchment. Their name brand, Java Mocha, was changed simply to the name Chase and Sanborn Seal brand due to a lack of overall use of coffee from Java or Mocha. This change was a result of another company, Swift & Company, being charged with misrepresentation of a product by the federal government. The company utilized premiums to encourage coffee sales. They spent $20,000 a year on advertisement, or the equivalent of around $650,000 today. Much of their advertisement was in educational color booklets, but also free novelty cards and blotters, and also stove displays. My favorite advertising method was their use of large coffee pots mounted onto the company's wagons, even having steam come out of the back of the spout. Maybe pizza delivery cars should try something like this with cool effects to draw on attention. An ad from 1892 depicted a grandmother staring into her coffee cup. Her daughter asking, What vision, dear mother, in your cup do you see? The grandmother responded, The whole world drinking Chase and Sanborn coffee and tea. A card came with it explaining the art of tassiography, or coffee and tea leaf reading, as we discussed earlier in the episode. The company worked to frequently show its care for its customers, hiring sales reps to ensure customer care. This included Christmas cards and working with those who were strapped with cash, even including selling coffee in exchange for cotton to southern farmers who couldn't afford it otherwise. They also forgave debt owed to them during the Vermont flood of 1927 and went as far as to even call customers who had fallen ill to check on them. The two men purchased coffee from private plantations. They would then roast and grind a sample of their new coffee, brewing it alongside their competitor's coffee, cup-tasting it to test its quality. Something which is interesting to note is Starbucks is known for doing this today, where they will receive a sample shipment and then a final shipment in which they cup it to test the quality. And if you remember from a couple episodes ago, I tried a cupping in which you put the coffee into the cup and then pour your hot water into it removing the top layer of coffee that which forms a foam on the surface, which is referred to as breaking it, to then try smelling it and tasting it. Cupping was a method used by tea connoisseurs for years, but it was Chase and Sanborn who were the first to utilize the practice for coffee. Next episode, we will have a special episode on the history of chicory, and then after that, we will return to our story by looking at the creation of Folgers and coffee in World War I. 
The show is written and produced by me, Ara Zaffer. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. For the price of a latte a month, you can support this and future projects in this series. Make sure to join our community on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. If you would like to contact us, you can message us through social media or at our email, completehistorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. And for my American listeners, make sure to share it with your friends and family over a cup of coffee this Thanksgiving. To close, here's a quote from Benjamin Franklin. Among the numerous luxuries of the table, coffee may be considered as one of the most valuable. Thank you.